Courage, we're drawn to it. Whether it's in movies or books or newspaper articles, we love stories of courage, of men and women doing hard things, even in the face of great adversity and risk. And we see courage displayed throughout the Bible, in the stories of the prophets and the apostles and the early church. But all of this can sometimes leave us wondering, what does Christian courage look like for me today? My guest today is Joe Rigney, and in our conversation, we discuss what it really means to have Christian courage. We explore why, contrary to common misconceptions, true courage isn't the absence of fear, but rather requires it. How the way of courage runs between two ditches, cowardice on the one hand and recklessness on the other. And why true courage is so important for all believers, especially leaders. Joe Rigney serves as a fellow of theology at New St. Andrews College and is the author of many books, including Courage, How the Gospel Creates Christian Fortitude from Crossway. Let's get started. So Joe, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway Podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. So just to start off, how would you define Christian courage simply? Yeah, uh, Chesterton's always a great place to start um, because he's so memorable. Courage is a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. Mm. That, that's such a, you call that the paradox of courage. Yeah. Unpack a little bit more of what he's getting at when he says it like that. Yeah, so courage has this sort of double vision element to it. There's a division within us. So on the one hand, you have sort of the danger or the threat or the thing that's provoking fear. And then on the other hand, you have this reward, this prize, this good thing that we want or that we're afraid to lose, that we don't want to lose. And both of those are present. So you've got, a, a, externally, you have a danger and then you have a good thing. And then internally, you have a fear and you have a desire. And it's the sort of combination of those coming together that creates the context for courage. Now, not necessarily courage, because you, you mm. could also get cowardice out of that. I want the good thing, but the fear overpowers, and so I run away, um, or I give up. Or you could get courage, which is when the desire for the good overcomes the fear of the danger. Mm. So you're always going to have the thing you want and the thing in the way. And courage is when your desire for the good overpowers and masters fear of loss. And that's why Chesterton, when he, when he gets into it, talks about how it's a necessity because oftentimes you've got to like, you want to live so badly that you're willing to come within an inch of death because the desire to live is so strong. Whereas if you don't want to live enough, you'll just be paralyzed and then death overtakes you. Yeah. So there's an element inherent to courage of risk, would you say? Absolutely. So courage, and, and there's really kind of two, I kind of think of it as in two forms. Um, on the one hand, there's what we might call the more risk-taking, which in my mind is more of the, I'm choosing to go into risk, not knowing necessarily what the risks are. So um, this is the pioneer, this is the missionary, this is that, that sort of circumstance where there's a risk-taking and it takes courage. The other side, though, I think is equally important and sometimes maybe overlooked, which is what we might call fortitude. So that's when I'm not going looking for trouble, but trouble came looking for me. Mm. And now there's a real risk. So risk is still there of me losing something that I have. And now I need to be fortified. I need to endure hardship. And there's all, that's, that's also courage. It's the same underlying virtue in both. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so why isn't being courageous the same thing as not being afraid? That's sometimes the way that we, right. in kind of common parlance, will sort of speak of the idea. Yeah, so... Yeah, people think of courage, you know, it means you're not afraid. Um, that's not true. Actually, courage requires fear. 
right? You need fear because um, so the guy who's walking on the edge of a precipice but doesn't know it, it's, it's foggy, and he's just right on the edge and could die at any minute. He's not being courageous. He's ignorant. Mm. It's when he becomes aware of how close he is to the edge that courage might actually be required. And so the presence of fear is sort of the given. It's the whether fear masters you or not is where courage comes into play. And so one of the ways uh, that I define courage is a kind of like sober-minded, habitual self-possession. I'm governing. It, it overcomes fear through that deeper desire for a greater good. But it's that sort of steady, stable, my passions, especially the passion of fear, doesn't master me. Instead, I master it because there's a greater, I have a deeper desire for a greater good. Mm. That's what I'm clinging to. And that's overcoming the fear that just sort of rises up. That's the way the Bible yeah. talks about fear is that fear falls upon us. Fear rises up within us. It's sort of a thing that almost happens to us. That's why it's a passion. And the steadiness in the face of that is where courage comes into play. So what's the, the difference between mastering our fear and having courage on the one hand and wisdom? So to take the example of the person walking along the precipice, doesn't know at first that they're on this precipice. All of a sudden the fog lifts. They see, I'm on the edge of a cliff. Right. What's the difference between you know having courage and being willing to persevere on that dangerous path? And on the other hand, having wisdom and recognizing maybe I shouldn't be up here in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So I distinguish courage, classical, you know, Aristotle guys like that always did this too. Courage, um, one of the extremes would be a kind of recklessness. Mm. Um, so that's courage taken too far? Yeah. Courage untethered from wisdom. Okay. So true courage always needs to be guided by ris- wisdom. It needs to be guided by what what's what reason says is good. And if we're going to talk about Christian courage, it means animated by the Holy Spirit and clinging to God. But just at a base level, even among sort of common courage, there's a difference between courage and recklessness. Recklessness is sort of unnecessary. We talk unnecessary risks, Mm. um, foolish risks. That's what recklessness is. On the flip side, the other extreme you could fall into would be kind of cowardice or passivity, which is normally the thing that we think of as the opposite of courage, but really courage. And that's when... um, the, the fear overpowers me, and so I run away. Or we I, don't want any risk. We had no risk, so no risk or unnecessary risk. And courage is about taking the right risks in pursuit of the real goods. Mm, that's so good. So it's, yeah, there, there's sort of, it's, it's a spectrum, and courage is right in the middle there, yep. and there's ditches on, on either sides. Yep. So then why do you think the topic of Christian courage is maybe particularly relevant for Christians today? Obviously, all Christians throughout the ages have needed courage. It's a virtue that, that Scripture calls us to. Yep. Um, but do you think there's a particular relevance for a book like this and a discussion like this for us today? Yeah, so I think the most obvious place I think people's minds will go is sort of the cultural moment in which unbelief and even marginalization, maybe persecution, hostility is sort of surrounding us on all sides as Christians. And so the question is, are we going to be silent or are we going to speak? Are we going to be bold or are we going to be cowards? And so that's kind of an obvious place where Mm -hmm. I think this is necessary. There's a chapter in the book on boldness uh, in which I, I really draw on the book of Acts. And talk about because that's that's you know repeatedly they were you know filled with boldness there was yeah. boldness and it was it was Holy Spirit generated and uh, and it was courage and clarity about Jesus and sin that's what the when when the Bible when the Book of Acts talks about boldness what when you go what are they doing and it's like well the Sanhedrin haul, hauling them in um, hey what are you doing teaching in this name and they say we're going to keep teaching in this name mm-hmm. and not only that we're not just going to bear witness to Jesus. We're going to call you out about your sin. And I think that's that's the place where I think sometimes in why this is necessary is to get clarity about that. Because I think most many Christians want to say, we want to testify to Jesus and be bold. 
but they kind of want to soft sell the sin part because that's the objectionable part yeah. in our current context. Very few people object to Jesus loves you. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. It's when you say, no, you may not have, you know, you can't, that's something you can't do. God forbids that you can't. Sexual morality is a sin. All of these things are sins. And when you, when you call out the sin and in specific sin, I think that's one of the lessons from that, that book of Acts. It's not just generic sin. Hey, we're all sinners. Because there's a lot of sins that the prevailing culture would be happy to condemn right alongside with us. Exactly. It's always, what's the sin in the room? What's the sin in front of you? And so when Peter and James, Peter and John are are taken before the Sanhedrin, it's, you killed Jesus, right? You murdered the author of life. Like a couple of weeks ago, you did this. And so it's not just, hey, we're all sinners. It's, you did this. And that's what sort of makes them angry and mm-hmm. brings the persecution is the clarity, the boldness about that particular sin. And then it's, but it's not just about sin. It's not just we're railing on sin. It, it is, is clarity about Jesus. You know, he's the way out. Repent, trust him. Repent. He sent us, he sent Jesus to turn every one of us from our wickedness. That's what boldness requires. So at one level, the cultural, this present generation requires that kind of Christian boldness. But the truth is, I think it's a, a more pervasive need just in the face of general anxieties. Mm. Like we live in a sort of age of anxiety where lots of things awaken fear in us. And so really common mundane things, you think about whether it's kind of the helicopter parenting phenomenon, like, are my kids going to be okay? And so there's fear that rises up. Well, so what, how you need to master the fear. What's that called? Courage, fortitude. Um, and so for parents to think about all of the other circumstances where in the mundane things of life. Um, what are the people at the office going to think about me if I do this or that? How am I going to orient with my family? Uh, for a pastor in a church, it may not be, the thing that may require the most courage actually may not be, I'm going to testify before the sexual fan- Sanhedrin, right? The sexual Pharisees of our day are going to haul me into to court to bear witness about sin. But it may actually be in my congregation. I know if I preach this Bible verse straight down the middle, I'm going to get emails. Mm-hmm. And that's where... Courage is required. You know, are you going to, Paul preaches the whole, I did, I, whole counsel of God. I didn't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. And that language of shrink back, what mm. is that? That's cowardice. That's fear. Yeah. So it's not just about these big pivotal Correct. moments in our lives. We can think of that. And that's where our mind often goes when it comes to a discussion about courage. But you'd kind of want to press it into the everyday lives that we experience and in all different spheres. Yes, exactly. So one of the examples I use, one of the ways that Christianity kind of transformed the virtue of courage, the ancient world saw, saw sort of the pinnacle of courage as warriors in battle, mm. obvious, and we can like still physical see courage. Physical courage in battle, which meant it was a more masculine, specific kind of virtue. Um, and, Christ- and they often, ancients often viewed courage as explicitly a, a masculine virtue. Correct. correct? And, they're, and, they're, and they're onto something. They are seeing something about the kind of context when that form of courage manifests. But the Bible uses Sarah as an example of courage, right? In the book of First Peter, mm. um, she hopes in God and she does not fear anything that is frightening. Well, what's the word for that? That's courage. What form did it take? She followed Abraham. She submitted to Abraham, calling him Lord. She, and so here she, her, the form her courage took was following, following a fallible man. That's scary. And yet she's doing it. And, and what's the virtue? Well, hope in God. So there's the greater good that I'm desiring that's overcoming the fear that rises up when I, we're leaving, you know, country, mm-hmm. kindred, and father's house and going yeah. who knows where. You want me to follow you? What virtue does she need? She needs courage. And she's a model for it for not just uh, women, but for men too. Yeah. So yeah, courage is expressed in all these different ways for all of us, not just men, not just women. So you've kind of already hit on this a little bit, but 
very briefly, what's the opposite of Christian courage? Let's speak about cowardice for a yeah. minute. So cowardice is when, the, is when fear overcomes us and is sort of in the driver's seat. So we're steered by our, our passions. And, that, and we think about that as a sort of um, maybe it's fear of physical danger where cowardice shows up. But I think one of the main ones is like loss of re- reputation. So cowardice and people-pleasing. I think actually in the scriptures kind of go hand in hand because basically there, rather than fearing God. So um, one way to talk about courage is ordering our fears properly. Mm. I want to fear God more than I fear First and foremost. Yeah, exactly. So not all fear is bad. There's good kind of fear. Um, I fear God and therefore I don't fear the Sanhedrin, which actually fits really well. Yeah. With, you know, we, we must fear God rather than man. Exactly. Right. Uh, They don't deny that there's fear. They actually say that no fear is good in a sense. Yes. It has to be, Ordered correctly. Ordered correctly. So, we, you know, sometimes we talk about ordered loves, you know, and sort of, uh, you know, love God most, love our families, love other people, but there's ordered fears. And so fearing God and so, um, and pleasing God. And then the opposite of that, if uh, man pleasing is in the driver's seat, we're going to be cowardly. Classic example of that is Peter in Antioch, right? Where the certain men from James come, he's been eating with the Gentiles, certain men from James come and say something to him. And then he and the rest of the Jews draw back, and it says, fearing the circumcision party. So they, there was fear. So whatever James said, whatever the men from James said, and I've got a kind of reconstruction, but whatever it is, it produced fear in Peter that caused him to withdraw. And so that's cowardice, mm. which is why then Paul has to sort of be the courageous one doubly. So both to continue to eat with the Gentiles and to, to confront b- Peter. Exactly. To, to boldly stand against sort of the premier apostle and say, brother, you are wrong here. You are, this is not in keeping with the truth of the gospel. Mm. Uh, and so there, th- there's a kind of, um, so the cowardice, and it, it's amazing when you start to look at it, how frequently it shows up in the scriptures, whether it's Aaron and the people at the golden calf, uh, whether it's uh, Israel in the wilderness generation, right, where they're afraid, you know, what's going to happen to us. Uh, they don't want to enter the land. There's giants there, we, you know, and all of those sort of situations, cowardice is the thing that shows up. And the Bible ties that to unbelief. The Bible says there's an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from living God. This is unbelief and rebellion, but it looks just like I'm afraid. Yeah, I was going to say, you say in the book, cowardice is a kind of rebellion. And I think we normally think of cowardice as just the lack of courage, perhaps. is like, you know, we just couldn't muster enough of what we needed to do something. But you would kind of want to position it more as no intentional rebellion against God. That's right. And so I think the experience of cowardice can feel like I'm just afraid and so can look it's sad or... or it feels very or passive. Passive, weak. Yeah. And we think, oh, and we want to kind of... Um, sometimes we want to coddle it. And instead, where the Bible will sometimes... And I think there's a way, a, way, a way to be patient and kind and so forth when you're dealing with somebody in that boat. But at the root level... When, it, when that passivity or that shrinking back turns into an action, like it turns into I'm doing something. Running I'm, away. I'm running away, yeah. or I'm not going to do what God calls me to do, or I'm going to you know, withdraw from fellowship. At that point, it's this is rebellion. This is I'm not believing God, trusting God. I'm more afraid of them than I am of him, and that's a problem. I value their approval more than I value his approval. That's a problem. That's rebellion. Um, and so you see that sort of consistently throughout the scriptures as sort of the, the fountain of cowardice. Mm. So then let's apply that to this, this broader cultural issue of our need for boldness today. You know, we are conservative Christians who love the Bible, who want to affirm what scripture affirms honestly and clearly, do face a lot of pressures in our culture today uh, on all, all number of fronts. 
how do we know the line, though, as we look at our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? So often we, we get into these arguments about you're not essentially being courageous. You're, you're being a coward in terms of how you're in, engaging on this issue or that issue. How do we know the line between when it's cowardice and when it's someone trying to exercise wisdom and in, in what they're willing to engage, how they're willing to engage on these issues? How do we discern yeah. those lines? Yeah, so I think that there, there's an element of proportionality that has to be. So how big of a, of a, whatever the thing that we're afraid to talk about, how big of a deal is it? We're not willing to call out direct high-handed rebellion against God. We're not willing to identify it as sin because we know that it won't go well. It'll provoke a reaction. If that's the case, that's just cowardice, mm. right? And, and, and I think one of, it, it can hide behind a kind of, well, I'm just trying to be wise. Yeah, like, is there a category of the strategic retreat yeah. where you're not running away, you actually, you still want to be in the fight, but you're, you are strategically retreating in order to fight another day kind of thing. Yeah. So I, yeah, that's certainly an element. I think the question is, are you actually going to fight another day? You know, it's, um, the more, you know, you just keep retreating and it's like, this is just retreating. This isn't like strategic <laughs> retreating. This isn't repositioning. This isn't taking the high ground in order to get a better shot. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think when we look in the scriptures, we see examples of this sort of thing. So I mean, we do see examples, to, to take that analogy further, we see examples of, of apostles leaving towns, kind of fleeing a town exactly. where they're being persecuted in order, presumably, to continue to preach elsewhere. That's right. One of my favorite examples, so yeah, so there are places of where wisdom says, hey, it's time to get out, walk away. But I think often uh, there's a, the, the story in the book of Acts where Paul is in Jerus- goes to Jerusalem towards the end of books of Acts, and the mob comes up, and then he goes out and addresses them, and he's sort of giving his testimony. And they're hushed into silence. They're quiet. They're rapt- listening with rapt attention to what he's saying about how I was a persecutor. Jesus knocked me off my horse, saved me. He can save you too. Like, that's all kind of the subtext. Mm. You get to the end of that, and he has to say, um, and then God said, up, I will send you away to the Gentiles. And the, the text says, up till that moment, they had listened. But the minute he said that, away with such a man from the earth, he does not deserve to live. It's mob again. I think had Paul not said that thing at the end, he would have not faithfully preached. Mm. Because that was the sin in the room. He, if, if this, this ethnic superiority exactly. That they had so this hostility listening. to the Gentiles. That's why they're mobbed. Is they think he brought a Gentile into the temple. They think he hates Moses. They think he's prefer. You know all this sort of stuff. If he doesn't touch the third rail, if he doesn't preach to the sin in the room, he's not faithfully preaching. And so I think part of our the calibration of when is this just wisdom and when is this mm. cowardice has to do with are you trying to avoid preaching to the sin in the room. Um, and that's because that's where boldness, that's where courage is required. And that can be true of the wider culture, for sure, but it's also true of your congregation as a pastor. Right, because every, every congregation, every community, whatever size we're at, is going to have different third rails, to, to put it that exactly. way. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so it, it is a little contextually determined, would you say, kind that, of where that's those right. are. And I think one of the optical illusions is it's, <laughs> you can actually you build a congregation preaching about other people's sins. Mm. Right, so you can you gather a group of people and you rail on the sins over there, meaning out in the culture or that church across town, and everybody amends you. And if you're so one calibration, if you only get amens in your congregation and you never get any ouches, right? So you, amen or ouch. Um, if you only get amens and you never get ouches, if people never go that stung, mm. then I don't. I think you're probably trying to avoid certain things. Yeah. In your congregation and you're probably playing up things that aren't actually present. Yeah, yeah. 
all of this makes me think there's there's so much wisdom necessary in determining yep. where to have where to be willing to to fight to stand up and where to be. This focus is actually not helpful right now for these people in front of me yep. right now. Yes. What's the difference between being courageously bold, especially when it comes to maybe some of these cultural issues that we are all confronted with, and being quarrelsome? How do you draw the line between those two things? Because Scripture explicitly tells us not to be quarrelsome, to live peaceably with with unbelievers around us. Yeah. So quarrelsomeness isn't the same as fighting. So courage means you may have to fight, but you're always fighting for some good. You're not just sort of fighting for fighting's sake. So I think when quarrelsome comes into play, either it's just, um, I like to fight just to fight, and there's no possibility of peace. So in other words, if you're fighting and then someone sort of extends the olive branch and says, oh, I think you have a good point, And then you just find another thing to fight about. Yeah. You're probably, you're just looking for, you're just so, trying to fight. So does this, does this suggest that there's a certain way to fight courageously? That is, that is, is there a certain appropriate way to fight uh, that has a certain kind of end in sight versus another way to fight that doesn't have that end? Yeah. So I think when I think about it, 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 the, I come back to the clarity piece. So if you're fighting and the main thing you're after is I want to persuade or I want to make clear. Okay. And those aren't always the same because pers- you might fail at persuasion. Paul did not persuade that mob that day. They did not all of a sudden. So sometimes Peter gets up and says, you sin, you kill Jesus and you get Pentecost. And then Paul gets up and he preaches to the, sa- the same town. He's in Jerusalem and he preaches the same sort of thing and he gets a mob. Both of them were successful. Okay, both of them, both of them accomplished. They were clear about mm-hmm. what God says and who Jesus is. That was what was successful. The response is not in their hands. And so we should measure, measure it less by, so someone say, Paul, stop being quarrelsome. And he said, all I did was say what was true. Mm-hmm. So to the degree that the hostility is driven simply by, I was clear about the truth and they didn't like it, I don't think you're being quarrelsome. It's when you're clear about the truth and then you want, they want to come your way and you say, well, no, 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 and you find yeah. something else to fight about. Or I think the other piece of quarrelsomeness has to do with proportionality. When, when, the, when quarrelsome's condemned in, say, the pastoral epistles, it's frequently, you know, they're wandering away into silly myths. They're arguing about stupid stuff. Yeah, that doesn't matter. It's, it's inconsequential. They're, they're wanting to get into the tall grass about silly stuff. They don't have their eye on the ball. So that sense of proportionality are these big things. Are these major issues? Are these high-handed violations of God's fundamental law? If that's what we're talking about, I think we need courage. Um, if if we have the same intensity about whether or not you know how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, or you know some sort of other interesting and thing you could debate, but it garners the same intensity, you, you're out of proportion. Is there a way to defend the? important truths in a quarrelsome way, though? Is there a way to, to say true things, true things that matter and that are important, but do it in a way that is quarrelsome? Yeah. So, and I, I think that has to do with whether or not if you were successful in persuading, that would be, hap- that would be good news to you. So yeah. in other words, is it, I want to constantly be yeah. in the, in the uh, fighting seat? Because I think that's, that's the nuance here is that we don't want to judge whether or not we're being quarrelsome simply by the results, which we can't control. Right. You know, unbelievers will reject the truth unless God works in their hearts. At the same time, can that sometimes, if no one is ever responding in any kind of positive way, is that maybe a sign to us that, hey, maybe I'm actually not, maybe I actually am being quarrelsome in how I'm going about discussing this? Yeah, I think so. But I, but I also, it would, it, I think there's a manner piece in it, and it has to do with the way quarrelsome might be connected to like sober-mindedness. And so if a quarrelsome person is the, is the sort of person that if you, if you know what button to push, you can get the reaction. Whereas the bold person, 
in terms of Christian courage, yeah. is in control of their boldness. Yeah. They know what they're doing. They're not simply a panic, you know, or, or anger in search of a trigger. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're not emotionally sucked into this vortex. Right. In both cases, and, and that's the, the interesting thing is whether you're talking about fear, where you'd want to run away and avoid conflict, mm. all you know, avoid conflict at all costs, or conflict at all, all recklessness, reckless with all co- conflict. In both cases, it's the passions mm. that are governing. You're being steered by either fear in the one hand, or maybe anger or frustration or yeah. something. And in both cases, it's the overcoming of those passions by a superior delight in who God is mm. that is the thing that, that sets the table and it keeps you steady. Yeah. So a common trope in many movies, we'll say, especially war movies, is that of this group of people, maybe a platoon, they're together, they're under fire, and they're afraid. You know, you can see they're being demoralized and there's just the courage is completely seeping out of this team. And then you have this one figure, usually the leader, who gives some impassioned speech and stands up and then is ready to charge the, ne- the you know the enemy lines, gives this model of courage, and through that example, others have courage, and that kind of speaks to this the dynamic where courage is contagious. You talk about yes. that a little bit in the book. Why do you think it is that we are so as humans moved by seeing the courage of others? Yeah, so God has made us to be imitative creatures. We we always we naturally mirror that which is around us. It takes effort not to do that, which is why cowardice is contagious mm. and courage is contagious. Both of them, we sort of, they, they seep into us. And so when we, uh, in the scriptures in Deuteronomy, when God's giving laws for warfare, he says, if there are any men among you who are faint-hearted and fearful, send them home, lest they cause the hearts of their brethren to melt like theirs. And so it was like, we don't want the cowards in the group because they will demoralize or the word discourage, right? You will be discouraged by mm. the guy who's afraid. Yeah. And so get him out of there because that's a threat to the sort of the ability of this army to do what they need to do. Conversely, courage is contagious. It spreads. Seeing courage spreads it. And so that's the guy who stands up and gives the Braveheart speech or whatever and leads everybody into battle. What is that called? Encourage. Mm-hmm. So we, we have, even in English, right, we have these sort of discourage, encourage Which parallels. we sort of water those words down maybe to some extent. It, or they don't... They don't carry that, the courage component to them as much. That's right. So we think we, discourage simply means kind of I'm sad. And encourage means like I'm just trying to give you a little boost. But what's actually, it's, it's fortification or weakening, melting mm. in both cases. And so the, on the encourage side, um, the language of taking heart is another way the Bible. So when Jesus says, in this world, you will have hardship. In this world, you'll have trouble. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. He, w- take heart is be courageous. It's, it's, a, it's a variation mm. on the sort of Old Testament. You see this Deuteronomy, Joshua in David's life. Be strong and courageous. Be very strong and courageous. Yeah. This repetition over and over and over again of that. And then notice it's strength. There's a, it, it takes a, a strength of mind, a, fortif- uh, a fortified mind to overcome because passions are really powerful. Mine are powerful internally. And when I see yours, your passions are very powerful to me. They can start to steer me. I can get sucked in, and it takes a kind of strength. Where's the strength come from? It comes from that desire for the greater good. Mm. A lot of pastors listen to the Crossway podcast, so I wonder if you could speak to them a little bit here. What might it look like for them to embrace Christian courage uh, in their own ministries to their, their, their people, their churches, especially in light of what we've just talked about, how courage is contagious and pastors occupy a uniquely powerful, influential role in the life of the church uh, and they are looked to as leaders and examples. What might what might this look like for a pastor? Yeah, so I think a pastor, the first step is a pastor needs to be able to have enough self-awareness 
aware of his own passions, reactions, impulses, and so forth. What is it, uh, own natural predisposition to things? I, I guess speak to that a little bit too. How does our own personality sometimes inform or influence how we tend to respond? I think some people, I know some people who they just, they don't seem to ever be afraid of anything. If anything, they are, they are constantly ready for a fight, whereas yep. others might be more timid yep. by nature. And I think that that could be, well, if, it, if it's just timidity, it'd be a problem. Just like if it was just it's kind of a brashness and I'm always looking to pick a fight. But if we're talking about uh, a tendency towards being more bold and a tendency towards being more maybe conciliatory, mm. I think both of those could be strengths. That's why plurality of eldership is a really valuable thing because you can help calibrate each other. And then you have to know your context. So calibrating what kind of person you are, but then also who's, who do you have an eye on? So pastors need to realize, and they, this is how you, you check. You're looking out at your congregation and you're going to preach. You have certain people or types of people in mind, okay? You, this is true of you. you this is say. true of everybody. You're a pastor. This, I'm a pastor, and everybody has people in mind. And they're trying to, and if a good pastor is trying to think, how will that person hear this? Because I want to be clear. I don't want to confuse. I want to be clear. But the danger of that is that it can easily slide into a kind of people-pleasing right? I want to make sure that they hear it and they accept it. And therefore I'll water things down or cut the corners or whatever in order to earn a hearing is how we would justify it. Mm -hmm. And so paying attention to the things that you won't touch, learning to, learning to sort of, when you start to self-censor, I don't want to say this thing that's in the Bible because I know it's going to cause a problem. That's a really dangerous thing. And then the flip side of that is it can actually be to your advantage to say the thing clear down the middle because courage is contagious. Like your people, there are people, if, if you only have your eye on certain people who you're afraid are going to react, the people that you don't have an eye on are the people who need your encouragement. Mm. They need to hear you say out loud because they're trying to raise kids in this crazy culture and they need to hear you say manhood and womanhood, they're different and they're both good. Mm. Right, And if you're always trying to like thread that needle and not want to touch that because it might be controversial and some people in your congregation might not like it, then there's people who are going to be languishing and melting. You, you're actually maybe discouraging you're, those people. Exactly. And I, think there, and I think there's a lot of Christians like that. And, the, and I think some of the sorting that we sometimes see among evangelicals is people trying to gravitate towards what's going to encourage them. Now, that can, that can get out of yeah. control too. But I, I think as a pastor to think not merely in terms of what's going to – sometimes we can have an eye – I think too much on what are unbel how are unbelievers going to react. That's an important question, but you can't control that. And so trying to control that, I think, is a fool's errand yeah. at the end of the day. Instead, first responsibility is encourage your saints. Help them to know what God thinks and how to live, and they need to hear you do it clearly. And then, and probably where you, where you might feel, feel a little trepidation about some topic, they're feeling all the more in their own lives. And so you can speak into that and encourage them in those weak spots. Exactly. And I, I can think of numerous examples where I went into the pulpit knowing, I think if I say this, there may be some people who react yeah, can negatively. You give a, can you give it a concrete example of a, of a topic or a, a verse in scripture that you were, you kind of found, all right, I'm supposed to be preaching this this Sunday. Yeah. And you, you felt a little bit of that twinge of fear of, I don't, I don't know if I want to touch that. Yeah. The, the, the thing, like an example would be at one point I was going to preach on what elder, how elders govern the church. And uh, I wanted to use I, I, the word rule, elders rule the church. That, that's, that was the scriptural word. The scriptural word, word the yeah. Bible word is let elders um, who rule well are worthy of double honors. The word rules in the Bible. And I, so I was like, I'm going to put that in there. But every time I tried, I kept kind of felt this little like, you know, say lead instead. Mm -hmm. L-E-A-D. So say lead instead of rule. And, I, then I, and I, I, I've tried to cultivate a self-awareness. Why do I want to do that? And it's not, who, oh, that's just fear. It's interrogate that. Is it wisdom? Is wisdom trying to tell you something? Or is it 
you know that people aren't going to like the word rule. That's going to have connotations they're not going to like. And therefore, you're trying to avoid something. Why am I trying to avoid it? It's a Bible word. Should I, maybe instead, I should try to help them love the Bible word. Mm. Like that, so that, and that's where I went. Was, was it, once I was aware of, I'm trying to shy it away, it communicated, I think, at the very least, some people might not like this. And so or maybe for legitimate reasons. and maybe for yeah yeah they've yeah. they've look at all of the pastors who have ruled who have ruled their churches and driven them into the in ground a, in a domineering domineering way. abusive way and so they've yeah. got connotations to that word and so it's like I want to be mindful of that but I also don't want to just shy away from it because that's cowardice not courage hmm. maybe as a last question my guess is that there are some people listening right now who who would if they were being honest say that they feel pretty intimidated oftentimes by the broader culture that we live in, or maybe just by things in their own lives, the situations that they face. They, they often feel afraid and they want to have courage, but they frankly just feel like they struggle with that. And that's a constant challenge. Practically speaking, what advice would you offer to them for actually cultivating Christian courage in our own lives? You know, I think all of us probably assume it's, it's not like a, a one and done thing. It's not going to be a quick fix. But what would it look like to start cultivating that? Yeah, I think, again, the book of Acts is really helpful to me in this. When you look at what happened after Peter and John go to the stand before the Sanhedrin and they get told, don't preach in this name anymore, what do they do? They come out, they gather with um, God's people. And so they gather up their friends and they lift their voices together and they pray. And what do they ask? They say, God, you made the heavens and the earth. The Gentiles are raging. Uh, the people, they quote Psalm 2, kings of the earth are you know, gathered together and they gather together against your holy servant Jesus and they killed him and, and they go, and they did exactly what your hand and plan predestined. So there's a confidence in the sovereignty of God that was there. They looked to that sovereignty, that hand, God's hand and God's plan and they said, this is, the, we don't choose the times we live, God does. We take courage from that. And then they said, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Literally praying for courage. Literally praying for courage. So, so, and, it, and I think it's important that there's a, obviously there's a place for uh, individual prayer for boldness, but this is a corporate act. This is together. Mm-hmm. And so you're getting sort of the double boost of the Holy Spirit's help, but also looking around at the others in the room going, we're all in on this. this we're together. Mm. This is the Bravehearts. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's a Braveheart type speech, but instead of being sort of in our own strength, it's an acknowledgement of mm. apart from God's help, it ain't going to happen. Mm. So we're, we're asking, we're not, it's not just Peter standing up in front and saying, hey, everybody, let's go, let's go be bold. It's God, we need your help to be bold, right? Um, stretch out your hand, stretch out your hand to heal, stretch out your hand to do great works. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken. God said, I'm in. Mm. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Mm. So good. Well, Joe, thank you so much for taking the time today to, to help us understand this important Christian virtue that we, we all need right now. Thanks. Thanks for having me. That was Joe Rigney on Christian Courage. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Courage, How the Gospel Creates Christian Fortitude. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off or get the ebook or audiobook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org slash plus. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.